Good evening. If you would, pull out a Bible and open it to Genesis chapter 16. That's where we'll be in a moment. Genesis 16. It's a blessing to be with you. It's been a blessing to be here this morning and tonight, and it's my hope and prayer uh, that this time that we have together can be fruitful. For a moment, I'd like to call you up to the screen. This passage behind me, Exodus 34, starting in verse 6, we read, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now, my understanding about this passage is that this is the first time that God discusses his own character. He reveals himself to his people. First time that we have it in the Bible. And if my understanding is correct, this is also the most referenced piece of Scripture in our Bibles. And so ever since we went over this, probably a year and a half ago now in Jason's Building Blocks class, I have been enamored with this passage. Can't stop thinking about it. Every time that I read Scripture, it shapes what I'm reading. Because God has flat out revealed what his character is. I mean, think about it. If someone were to introduce themselves to you, the very first thing that they say to you would be important, right? And if that very first thing they said to you, they then repeated more than anything else they ever talked to you about, you would, you would probably remember that. And you would probably view everything else that they said or did through that lens. We see it referenced often. Psalm 103 says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards us. It's referenced in Lamentations. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. It's all over the Bible. And it's incredible that we can see the character of God. Maybe you aren't as familiar with that one, but I can promise you that there are a few that you, you are familiar with. John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world. We love that. That passage shapes how we view other pieces of Scripture. Even one like in 2 Peter, where Peter says that God is patient, not willing that any should perish. And whenever we think about God and time, we always reference that verse and say that a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. We love these passages. We comfort in them. We post them on social media. We put them in our homes. They're on decorative pillows on our couches, right? But what if we didn't have them? What if all of these passages that you have heard growing up for so long in your life that you can take comfort in and you stand on solid ground saying, I know that God is, and you can fill in the blank, loving. I know that he cares. I know that he's merciful. I know that he's patient. What if you didn't have any of those? What if you just had your life experience? How would you view who God is? What would you think about his character? What would your assumptions be? We see that sometimes. Sometimes maybe we come across people who aren't too familiar with God or, or the Bible, and so they just judge God based off of some life experiences. Well, the passages that I want to look at tonight, we see that. 
we see three different instances in the book of Genesis of people who had to come to a conclusion about what the character of God was based off of just a few experiences that they had. They didn't have this whole book. They didn't have these verses that they could rest in. They just had a few experiences with God. And it's a blessing because we'll be in Genesis. I know Shannon was in Genesis this morning, which is wonderful, and we'll be in different parts of it this evening as well. And most of us in our Bible classes have been studying Genesis throughout this time. So in these three different stories, they can be summed up with the God who, and then this blank. And all three people come up with a different conclusion. So let's go ahead and, let's go ahead and read out of Genesis 16. And as we go through these, I simply want you to try and put yourself into the shoes of these people. I want you to think about what you would infer about God's character based off of these experiences. The first one we have is Hagar. Hagar in Genesis 16 is the servant of Sarah and Abraham. And she has been, quite frankly, used to try and fulfill promises so that Abraham can have an heir. And at some point, she disrespects Sarah in some way, and she is treated so harshly that she runs away. And that's where we pick up in verse 7 of Genesis 16. It says, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who sees me. Therefore, the well was called the well of the living one who sees me, and it lies between Kadesh and Barad. Hagar, a servant, she's been treated so poorly that she runs away, on her own, pregnant, hopeless, you can imagine in this time that that situation's about as bad as it gets. Things are so bad that even in her situation, she felt to run away. And at this moment, an angel of the Lord visits her. And out of all the things that she said, she says, you are a God of seeing. Because she said, I have seen the one who sees me. Would you come to that conclusion? You notice what she wasn't told? She was told that her son would be a great and mighty man, but she wasn't told that it would be a smooth life when she went back. She was told that she needed to go back to the person who mistreated her so much that she felt like she needed to run away in her state. But at her lowest moment, she says that she has seen the one who sees her. And clearly, as we go throughout Scripture, she's not the only one that feels this way. If you go throughout the Old Testament, this is solidified. Psalm 33, 18 says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. It continues on. Job 
when Elihu is talking to Job, he simply tells Job, for his eyes are on the ways of a man and he sees all his steps. And you remember when David was being selected for king and Samuel is being spoken to by God and God says, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Hagar knew what was confirmed for us, that he truly is a God who sees. And so she's just number one. If you flip a couple pages here in Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22, Abraham has been asked to sacrifice his son, that heir that he finally had, that was promised for so long. He's been asked to do the unthinkable, right? Sacrifice of a child was something that pagans did. Definitely no one who served the God of Abraham, his God, he would never call on him to do that, and yet that's what he's been asked. And so starting in verse 7, And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. What incredible faith. You think about Abraham's backstory. He's journeyed a long ways. He's, had a, he's lived a lot of life at this point, right? I mean, he has really journeyed. He went to the land that God told him to go to, and then he went down to Egypt, and he came back. His wife was almost taken from him a few different times. He's always been promised this heir that a great nation would come through, and it's finally happened. And then God tells him to sacrifice that heir. And even in this moment, what would you say? What would you say about God? Maybe you would say God tests. He is a God of testing. Maybe you would say God just plays mind games with me, right? Or maybe you'd say, God just makes my life hard. I got up and journeyed, and I am still going. Abraham has the faith to say something completely different. He says he is the God who provides. I don't know if I have the faith to say that. I would like to think I would. But in that moment, of all the things, he says he is the God who provides. And once again, when we go throughout the Old Testament, we can see it. He provides for the people as they leave Egypt, as they're led out of slavery. He parts the sea so that they can cross. He gives them that way of escape. And when they're wandering in the wilderness, God provides them again with manna to eat. In Psalm 23, this basic verse of, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
because he provides. It was established. Abraham knew it from that point. Abraham didn't have this Bible to go ahead and read and find out. He simply had that experience. And so our third this morning comes from, or this evening, excuse me, comes from Genesis 35. Flip over to Genesis 35 if you would. In the context of this, we read in chapter 34 that Jacob has just been through great tragedy. And in dealing with this great tragedy, two of Jacob's sons go and get vengeance. And they kill an entire village. And we end chapter 34 with Jacob in great fear because he thinks that the natives to this land that he is dwelling in will attack him because of what his sons have done. And starting in verse 1 of chapter 35, we read, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the time of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. The end of chapter 34, Jacob states how afraid he is of everyone who lives in the land. And if you notice, at the very first verse of chapter 35, God says to Jacob, arise and go to Bethel. I don't know about you, but if you were afraid of a number of people that lived around you, I think the last thing I would want to do is travel. The last thing I would want to do is leave home and the comfort of it. He's just endured tragedy, and now he's told to get up and go make an altar to God. What would you have said? Really? <laughs> really? A few chapters before this, he's had to deal with his brother, who he cheated, and he had to come face to face with him. Before that, he was cheated out of his wife. What would you say about the character of God when he asked you to do this? Out of all the things that Jacob said, he said, we're going to arise and I am going to make an altar to the God who answers. The God who answers me in the day of my distress. And then he adds on and has been with me wherever I have gone. And just like the other two, this is reinforced all throughout our Old Testament. David talks about it three different times in the Old Testament. In 2 Samuel, he says, In my distress, I called upon the Lord, and from his temple he heard my voice. In Psalm, David says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me. And once again in Psalms, he says, On the day I called, you answered me. And not only David, but God himself speaks in some of these Psalms. We have two different ones. One where God says, when he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him. And the other one says, and call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. So we see these three attributes of God from people who didn't have a Bible to read them out of. That he sees, he answers, and he provides. And so I say all these things tonight for two reasons. Number one, God is active. 
God has always been a, a doer. Immediately from when he created, and he created this earth up until now, he has always been at work. And that means he's been at work in your life and mine. And so tonight, I'd ask you to think about this question. If you had to come up with your the God who statement, what would it be in your own life? What would you say? Doesn't have to be poetic. Doesn't have to be long. But what would you say? If you looked at your own life and you said the God who, how would you finish that? Maybe you'd say the God who delivered me. Maybe you'd say he's the God who remembered me. The God who healed me, blessed me. The God who taught me a much-needed lesson. The God who comforted me. He's the God who brought people into my life who showed me his love. Or here's one that I've been thinking about lately. He's the God who has been patient with me. God is a doer. What would you say that he has done in your life? I think it's fruitful for us to dwell upon that question. When we look at what God's done for us in our lives, it becomes pretty personal. And in turn, it makes it much easier for us to tell others about what he has done for us. So that's number one. But number two is that these attributes are not just seen in our Old Testaments. These attributes are seen and reinforced in Jesus, and that he has and continues to do all three of those things for us today. If you would, turn your Bible to John, John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, starting in verse 45, Jesus is just called Philip. And verse 45 reads, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit, Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Just as Hagar concluded that he was a God of seeing in Genesis, we see that Jesus is the culmination and that he saw. And we see that we are seen today. Hebrews says, And no creature is hidden from his sight. He is a God who did not only see her in her lowest moment, but he sees us in our lowest moment. And so just as Hagar was seen, Jesus saw Nathanael, and we are seen. And just as God answered Jacob in his time of distress and was with him wherever he went, he does the same with us. In 1 John chapter 5, says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. 
Turn with me, if you would, over to another gospel, Mark chapter 4. Once again, we have a story of Jesus just solidifying everything that Jacob has concluded. Mark chapter 4, and in verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? We are told that they are filled with fear. Fishermen, they're in great distress. And what does Jesus do? He answers. He immediately answers. And not only did Jacob say that he answered him, but he was with him wherever he went. Jesus once again fulfills this. In Matthew 28, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of age. Now, I'm not blind to the fact that when Jesus and God answer us, it's not always the answer that we want. I'm not going to sugarcoat that. But there's no doubt that we are, in fact, answered by our God. Whether that's with comfort, or whether that's with peace, or whether that's just the no that we sometimes need in our lives, He is a God who answers us in our time of distress and has always been with us. And so finally, God provided for Abraham just like he does for us today. We talked about the children of Israel, right? How God provided them with a way of escape out of the slavery of Egypt. And we see that same concept here in the New Testament, right? And how he provides for us a way of escape from the slavery of sin. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And just as he provided those children of Israel with their daily provisions of manna along the way, Jesus talks in Matthew 6, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? He truly provides for us. He didn't necessarily promise that it would be an easy life with those provisions, but he does provide for us. Turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 8. This will be the last passage that we turn to this evening. But we see that he has provided for us spiritually. Just as God provided the lamb for Abraham, so we are provided for spiritually. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world when looking at Jesus as he went along. 
And in Romans chapter 8, that we actually used for our Lord's Supper this morning, beginning in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? In verse 37, it says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Jesus was the lamb. Abraham was provided with a lamb that day rather than having to give his son. And yet God allowed his son to come down to live as a man and to be that perfect lamb. And he provided that lamb for you and I. He provided the sacrifice to give us forgiveness as broken people, desperate for hope, desperate for love, desperate for Savior. He provided. So tonight, I don't know where you're at. I don't know what challenges you have ahead of you this week. I don't know what you're looking forward to. I don't know what you're dreading. I don't know what your Monday is going to be like. But I'm here to tell you three things that just as God did thousands of years ago to three very different people who were in very different situations, who were very imperfect, he could do those three things for you today, and he does. Number one, he sees you. No matter where you're at, if you're in your lowest of lows, if you're in your highest of highs, he sees you because he is a God who sees. Number two, he answers you in your time of distress and is with you wherever you go, just as he did for Jacob. And number three, he is a God who has provided and continues to provide. Knowing those three things, why would I not want to follow him? Because when I look at the rest of my life, who else can I say that about? Who always sees me, no matter my situation, who always answers me in my distress, and who always provides for me when I need mercy and forgiveness and love and grace? Why would I not want to follow Jesus? So tonight, if you need to respond to the grace of God, I would ask you that there's no better time than now. Please do so while we stand and sing.